This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On this, our second Highlights episode this year, we're going to revisit some popular topics. We'll start in March with episode 308. Journalist Buddy Levy is author of Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition. The book details the harrowing story of A.W. Greeley's trip north in the 1880s. Why did you decide to write about this particular expedition, buddy? When I discovered it, it was it was an interesting sort of backwards uh, encounter. I I um, I was in Greenland uh, right as a journalist writing about um, an adventurer named Eric Weinmayer, who is the first blind man to summit Mount Everest, and um, and he also kayaked down the entire length of the Grand Canyon. And I had gone there to um, write about him. Uh, and I was so struck by Greenland and the, the landscape and just the vastness of it. I started reading about polar exploration. Um, and that was back in 03. Uh, and then I, I got sidetracked, uh, wrote a book about Eric Weinmayer and wrote a number of other books. Uh, but the polar exploration never really left my imagination. And um, a couple of years ago, my agent uh, said he had an editor friend who was really fascinated by um, polar exploration, and I had been saving a file for about five years on everything I'd ever read, and the Greeley expedition was um, the most riveting of them all, in my opinion. Yeah, and he, what an interesting guy was Adolphus Washington uh, Greeley, U.S. Army officer, polar explorer, and recipient of the Medal of Honor, which he he didn't get for this, or maybe partly for this, but he, well, anyway, we'll talk more about that uh Later, um, he, he was uh, quite a man. I mean, he, he really did a lot of different things in his life. Yeah, I mean, re- researching about Greeley, you know, you, you get this admiration for um, polymaths, you know, uh, people that just are so multifaceted. And, and while his early career, I mean, um, you know, he didn't have a ton of formal education. He signed on to the... Um, U.S. Army at age 17, and, and apparently that was after he'd, he'd been denied twice. Uh, and he ends up being a you know, Civil War veteran and hero, and um, and then he worked for the the Signal Corps. And I love the stories about him being out on the um, plains of the American Southwest, you know, setting up some of the first um, telegraph lines and um, encounters with um, – Indian tribes and uh, the guy was just then he then he started reading about polar exploration on his own, which was really really fascinating. So he was very driven and self taught and um, and and incredibly able, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, he, he's a national treasure in my mind. Now, you said he started reading about polar exploration. I mean, I was curious why was he. I mean, was he picked for this mission, or did he just create this mission, and then the army went along with it? Well, no, that's a great question. So he, there had been a mission um, that was conspired by this man named Howgate, um, and and it, for a number of reasons, it didn't get funding. And of course, uh, at this time, you know, polar exploration was a very, very risky enterprise, and so um, the U.S. government was a little bit. Um, and rightfully uh, hesitant to go sending um, our men into the polar regions because 
uh, crew losses at that time were about 50%. Um, but Greeley had found out about this uh, project called the International Polar Year, and this Austrian guy conceived of it. It was a really, really visionary project that was going to put um, 14 different countries at polar stations circumnavigating the Arctic region. And and the, the Greeley expedition was to be the uh, further, the farthest northernmost of these stations, and they're going to study uh, the Arctic region for uh, over two years, really, uh, and then compare all their notes. So uh, when Greeley found out about that, he was so taken by the the romance of it and the the opportunity for fame and fortune, potentially because he he also harbored this secret desire to break the record of farthest north which had been held by the British for some 300 years, you know, the most northerly um, travelers mm-hmm. on the globe. No one at this time had been to the North Pole. So I think also, you know, he was definitely driven by um, that explorer's mentality. Mm-hmm. A.W. Greeley and a handful of others were rescued in June 1884. Buddy Levy's book is Labyrinth of Ice. In May, episode 316 featured U. Albany professor Richard Ham on what really happened during Prohibition. Ham is co-editor with Michael Lewis of the book Prohibition's Greatest Myths, the distilled truth about America's anti-alcohol crusade. The format is you publish a number of essays by various scholars. That, that's correct, Bob. There are, there are 10 essays in there, uh, one by Michael and one by me also, uh, but eight other scholars. Um, some are political scientists, some are sociologists, most are historians. And the book is organized in, you know, it, it centers around national prohibition, but it goes back to the origins of temperance and comes forward to current uh, attitudes about drinking, how they relate to prohibition, and also marijuana prohibition. So it, it kind of sweeps through time in, in its, um, in its uh, and they're, they're all short pieces, uh, tight pieces, and the whole book is under 200 pages. Okay. Now, in your chapter, you clarify the connections between prohibition and organized crime. Didn't prohibition lead to an increase in organized crime? Oh, indeed, it led to an increase in organized crime. There is no doubt about it. But there's a very common perception out there that prohibition started organized crime in the United States, and that it certainly did not. Um, Organized crime certainly gets a huge impetus from prohibition, prohibition because, after all, you know, a new commodity that people want is, is made illegal in many more places than it had been illegal, and it allowed um, the growth of an illegal market. And, of course, organized crime that had been already organizing, uh, especially prostitution, a little bit with drugs, but not as much, but especially prostitution and, and um, racketeering, that is, extortion of businesses, um, it moves into prohibition. More uh, striking is how much the federal government moves in policing in, in because of the creation of prohibition. And, and it, it's really kind of amazing when we think about it before prohibition. 
the most active federal law enforcement agency um, with the most number of agents doing the most work bringing people into jail were the postal inspectors, the Uh. people who checked the mail for fraud, essentially. Um, and that was a you know that was a booming, booming business, uh, a bad business. Uh, people being duped by mail order, people being duped by false stock offers and stuff like that. Um, but prohibition, when it's created, it creates this prohibition bureau uh, within the Treasury Department. And even though it's slow to, and they don't want to create a lot of officers, but its its initial staffing is three times the size of the FBI. Um, mm. It's gigantic. Uh, the FBI, by the way, had virtually nothing to do with the the enforcement of prohibition. Uh, it stayed away from it because um, the director of the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, saw that it was political dynamite, and he had finely tuned bureaucratic skills, survival skills, um, and he basically stayed away from prohibition enforcement, um, which kept the bureau in good standing as enforcement uh, declined in, into abuse and corruption. One-third of the federal force was essentially um, forced out of service for uh, mostly for bribery or drunkenness on the job. This, you know, that does not speak very well for the federal enforcers. So who, who was um, enforcing the prohibition laws, and does that part of government still exist, or that law enforcement well, agency? I, <laughs> well, there is still the Bureau of Alcohol, <laughs> Tobacco, and Firearms, yes. But no, actually, you have to do two things. You have to realize the Prohibition Amendment splits enforcement. It gives a, it gives the second clause gives concurrent power to the states and the federal government to enforce the amendment. And the prohibitionists who created the amendment expected the states to do most of the work, um, and the states did do most of the work actually. The federal government created a Prohibition Bureau, but everybody else in the federal government was also responsible for uh, enforcing the law. I mean, that's, you know, basically how law enforcement works. So even even park rangers get in on enforcing the Volstead Act when people are, 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 um, you know, somebody's trying to sell liquor in a national park, for instance. So Mm. it, it truly empowered everybody. Um, the government has changed so much from it that there's no real carryover from that, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. The, there, are two car- there are two huge carryovers. First of all, the federal government got directly involved a lot in policing, much more than it ever had been before. And, and secondly, the federal courts, which had mostly been forms for civil disputes between businessmen over business matters, became criminal courts. Um, more than half their workload turned to criminal court activity. And this is just a huge transformation. Uh, You read the papers of all the judges, and they're absolutely aghast at this. They don't know what to do about it, and they're overwhelmed. And they, you know, they're in the criminal court business, and they they have stayed in it ever since because the federal government then increases its criminal justice uh, profile in the American society. That's history professor Richard Hamm from the University at Albany, co-editor of Prohibition's Greatest Myths. In June, on Historian's Podcast 324, we heard Yanni Venema, who came to Albany, New York from the Netherlands 35 years ago and worked translating New Netherland Colony 
early Dutch manuscripts with project director Charles Gehring. She's heading back to the Netherlands now. I asked her why she came to Albany in the first place. Actually, I did not know anything about Albany or Schenectady or New York State at all. Um, I just thought New York was New York City, but I was I had uh, I was corresponding with a with an American boyfriend who I had met on vacation in Europe, and um, uh, at some point he invited me to come to America, and I was always kind of um, uh, in, I, I always wanted to make a uh, vacation on my own, just traveling by Greyhound through America. That was my idea uh, of a big adventure. And then mm-hmm. uh, when I came at the airport, the boyfriend picked me up, and actually we made a cross-country trip together. <laughs> so I did not do it on my own by um, by um, Greyhound bus. That was in the. This is like 1982 or so, I think. Mm-hmm. 82 or 83. Anyway, then I. Um, boy, I better sit away from the computer. I think. Um, then I. Um, met Charlie because I, I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do, whether because then the boyfriend became a little bit more than just a, a, a an, um, boyfriend. And at some point we thought it would be good to be together. And um, I came with a leave of absence. And that's when I started working with Charlie, who I had met already on a vacation. And um, I taught Dutch at, the, at at a high school in the Netherlands at that time. And... I also taught some history, so this was fun, and I was kind of looking for old maps that I could use in my classroom, and um, because the kids didn't know either that New York was a state and not just a city, and um, I figured, well, if I do it with that that way, with those old maps, then I teach them something, and the, and the kids are going to be thinking that, oh, the teacher is just talking about her whitewater canoeing and hiking and so forth. But in the meantime, they learn that New York is a big state, and it's a beautiful state. So that was a little bit uh, the idea. And then uh, when I was on the leave of absence, that's when I worked with Charlie, um, who I had run into in kind of a double way. Um, I met him on my own because I was looking for those maps, and they kind of you know, I, I wanted to buy a copy of those maps, and um, they couldn't help me in the museum shop, and then I ended up with Charlie. Mm. And I said to Charlie, so, yes? No, I was going to say, Charlie Gehring, whom you speak, he yeah, has yeah, an yeah. officer, he works in the, and there you worked in the also in the building that houses the State Museum, right? Right, yeah, we are, we are in the education, uh, cultural education center, which houses the museum, the archives, and the library. And um, so that's where Charlie was. And when I met him, I said to him, boy, you know, um, the mother of a friend of mine in America had sent me a little newspaper clipping, a clipping about a guy who is translating Dutch documents into English. And I said, boy you know that somebody else is doing this too? And I was going to look him up, only I hadn't gotten that. And it's the, the, the article clip is still in my uh, backpack. But I'll look him up and I'll bring you guys in contact with each other because then Charlie, when I met him, 
uh, he said that he didn't know of anybody else doing this stuff. Well, needless to say, the next day I was going to look up this guy from the newspaper article, and that was Charlie, too. So I would have <laughs> met him anyway. So that's kind of um, a nice nice kind of coincidence. It, it is. Well, yeah. this is, again, this is quite a story, and I first heard this tale. I mean, I've known Charlie over the years. I mean, he's from originally from the Mohawk Valley where I where I live, and he's, uh, as, as they say, been very nice to me. I, I, I do history kind of in a minor or local way, but Charlie's interested in it because he's from the area that I that I write about. But uh, what, uh, my first knowledge of you was reading this article that Paul Grandel wrote for the Times Union uh, saying that you've retired from your 35 years, and he just <laughs> said how you'd, you'd come to Albany and you met Charlie, you went to work with Charlie, and you've worked there for 35 years but there's so many other questions just sort of hanging out there i hate to ask you but i will but you don't have to go there if you don't want to what happened to the boyfriend oh, we actually were married for 10 years a little bit over oh. 10 years and um, okay. and th- and then we were divorced in addition to translating old Dutch documents from the 1600s when new york was new netherland a dutch colony Yanni Venema is author of two books about early Albany history, one about the settlement called Beverwijk, and the other about patroon Killian van Rensselaer. Moving on to episode 329, which debuted in July of 2020, about Dan Weaver's latest book, which contains 60 of his local history columns. Most of them appeared in the Amsterdam Recorder. The book, between the Cracks, Forgotten Stories of Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Valley. Dan tells a tale from the 1980s about Amsterdam manufacturer and shipper Coleco. Coleco marketed the Cabbage Patch doll, and Dan Weaver was on the local loading dock when a wooden crate of dolls arrived from China. I worked there five and a half years, and um, I worked on the dock a lot of the time. And there was one day where a crate came, and it was, you know, most of the time the goods arrived in cardboard cartons, but this was an actual wooden crate. So Eddie Bubniak and I, Eddie worked on the dock too, we took the crate apart, see what was in it, and then we looked, and we looked at each other and started laughing, and I said, Who's going to buy an ugly thing like that? And, and what it was was a proto—it it was a prototype of the uh, mass-produced Cabbage Patch Kid, Cabbage Patch Doll. They had been made by hand prior to that and cost like a hundred dollars a piece. But Coleco was licensed to mass-produce them, and Eddie and I saw the first one that came, and we were shocked. And, and I thought nobody would buy this, which was a foolish thing to say on my part, but. Uh, because it, you know, went on to become very, very popular. I mean, who knew? I mean, very, very popular. It really, uh, at least temporarily, boosted uh, Coleco's fortunes, including in Amsterdam, even though the the doll is not made in Amsterdam, right? It's made in China. Right, right, yeah. A lot of Coleco's stuff was made in China. Uh, There was some assembly done in Amsterdam, but a lot of times it was simply boxing things, quality control, testing things. And with the Cabbage Patch doll, they were flown over here. Coleco 
in order to keep up with the demand, was hiring seven Boeing 747s to bring them over. That's something. And, again, they, they sold uh, tons of those dolls. I remember my daughter, uh, we got my daughter one, and as I recall, you got a you got a birth certificate with it or something like that? I mean, the whole premise yes. of the, what was it? It was an adoption. Exactly. And also, at least initially, you were supposed to get a birthday card every year, too. But, you know, obviously that <laughs> that didn't last because Coleco went out of business. And um, while they were in business with the Cabbage Patch doll, I think, I don't know if it's in this story that's in your new book or not, or this part of it, but there was a concern on the part of Coleco management. I mean, you were the people, you know, you the workers of Coleco handling these dolls. They were afraid that some of them might go out in your lunch pail or something, right? Well, I've heard stories. I I don't know how true they are, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I do know that people did steal things there. Like, you know, many businesses, there's, there's a certain amount of theft. I heard stories where people would drop them out of the windows of the upper floors of Building 6 to Confederates who are waiting below to take them and, and then sell them or whatever. And didn't they actually, or did they, or is this just an old wives' tale, uh, put up screens or something, you know, to catch the dolls in case somebody were to try to throw one out the window? That I don't know about that, but it, it's it's possible. What happened? I think you know, you know this story for you know quite well. I mean, again, you worked there. Um, Coleco, when the Cabbage Patch doll came, and even before, was doing pretty well in in Amsterdam, in fact, employed, I think you've said, as many people as the carpet industry did? Yeah, at, at their high, at their peak, Coleco was employing 5,000 people, which I think was about what the two carpet mills employed at their peak. But what happened to them? Well, a couple things. One, they sold off some productive uh, lines of goods that didn't bring in, they, they weren't highly profitable, but they were they were always profitable. Uh, for example, their tricycles. Uh, tricycles are a perennial sa- sale. You know, k- kids always want tricycles. Another line they sold off was their pool line, and and then instead of you know, they put all their money into one basket. Well, actually, two baskets. One was the Cabbage Patch doll, which was only a fad. You know, after a couple of years, sales just tanked because kids were on to the next fad. And then mm-hmm. they put all their money into the Atom computer, the ColecoVision and the Atom computer. The ColecoVision did fairly well, but the Atom computer really failed because of it had many uh, had many issues. Plus, other companies were coming out with their computers, and they were better equipped to produce computers than Coleco was. So, uh, the fact that that they continued to produce Cabbage Patch dolls. And, and put all their money into that, even after the fad was was dying, and putting all their money into the Atom computer, which which was very flawed, a very flawed computer. Dan Weaver's book, Between the Cracks, Forgotten Stories of Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Valley. Our last episode in this, our second 2020 highlight production of Historian's Podcast, debuted in August, episode 330, Margaret Wiedekamp chairs the Space History Department 
at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. I was watching CBS Sunday Morning once, and they had a report on outer space, and they brought Margaret Wiedekamp on camera, introduced her as a space historian. Are there a lot of space historians? There are actually quite a few of us uh, who have been interested in both the history of technology, the history of science, uh, the social and cultural history of space flight, uh, which is particularly my interest. And uh, so, yes, we're a a small, but it's a great community of scholars and uh, really interested in what has it meant for humanity to begin to be a spacefaring people. And what does that mean for what, where we're going, and what does that mean for who we are back on Earth? Margaret Weidekamp works at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and chairs the Space History Department. Uh, what do you and, and what do the other folks in that department do? Well, so as curators, we are responsible for the artifacts in the National Collection at the Smithsonian, specifically those within the National Air and Space Museum. And so we have particular collecting areas. The mission of the National Air and Space Museum, in addition to being one of the most popular museums in the world, is really to be a material repository for the history of the nation, for us and for the world. And so we are interested in collecting physical objects, three-dimensional things, as well as archives. We have a whole wonderful archives and library division. And we are trying to make sure that generations from now, when people want to know about the real history of aviation and spaceflight, if we've done our jobs right, we should have collected the right things that would help them to know that history and to investigate it. So we are a research repository in addition to then putting those objects on display for outreach for the public. Hmm. I've never been there. Is it in Virginia or is it actually in D.C.? We actually are one museum with two sites. So the National Air and Space Museum has a building on the National Mall that opened in 1976 and that is currently undergoing a massive renovation. And then we have, in addition, the Stephen F. Ugarhazi Center that opened in 2003, and that's out in Chantilly, Virginia, the location chosen because we share a taxiway with Dulles Airport, which allows the museum to be able to fly major artifacts in or out as we need to. You curate the museum's social and cultural history of spaceflight collection. What what is that? Simply put, it is the objects that tell us about how spaceflight has been remembered and how spaceflight has been imagined. So I am responsible for a collection of over 5,000 objects that is memorabilia of the actual space program. So pins and patches, awards, um, medals, things from an elite piece made by a jeweler and given to John Glenn in celebration of his flight in 1962 down to a Neil Armstrong for President button that you might have been able to pick up at the Cape in 1969. And the other part of the collection is the Space Science Fiction Collection, which is about how spaceflight has been imagined. And so that's mostly commercially available memorabilia, um, uh, games, toys, things like that. And also then 
a few screen-used props. So uh, I am responsible for the 11-foot studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise, which is the big hero model that was used in filming the original television series in the late 1960s. So it's a real range of objects that tell you about American culture and world culture and how spaceflight has been imagined and executed. Space historian Margaret Wiedekamp is author of Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program. Thanks for listening. Remember our GoFundMe campaign. There's a link to the GoFundMe page on our website, bobcudmore.com. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.